0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's class. Let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father. As we encounter your word this morning that you would breathe life into our hearts, that we might hear you as you speak to us that which is of you would take deep root, and that which is not of you would be scattered to the wind by the power of your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very glad for you to have heard from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor. And if this was the first time that you've ever heard Martin Lloyd-Jones, let it not be the last. Uh, he uh, is a little bit different in his teaching than he is in his preaching, uh, as you probably have noticed, even in the way that I teach and the way that I preach, uh, preaching being uh, more of proclamation and really letting you have it. And I know that the doctor would spin in his grave if he heard me say that when he preaches, he uh, exhibits the Welsh quill, which is uh, a cadence and uh, and an excitement. And so I hope that you do go to the MLJ Trust dot org website and listen to some sermons from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Even his series on Ephesians is masterful. I think it took him over three years to get through the entirety of Ephesians. I know that in one instance he preached something like 14 sermons just on one verse. Uh, So uh, we're getting through that a little bit more quickly than Martin Lloyd-Jones did. But again, I commend him to you uh, as a dear brother in the Lord. And as I quoted Hebrews last week, the dead yet speaketh, Lloyd-Jones was right, the doctor, to say that the subject of the church is a great and controversial subject. Uh, It's uh, a dividing issue, unfortunately, although I think that Lloyd-Jones did a very good job of arguing that it should not be a dividing issue, especially when it comes to the governance of the church. But it's that misunderstanding uh, that leads to the division. So this morning I want to reiterate some of the points that Lloyd-Jones made uh, in his talk, their implications for us, and above all, a pleading for you and for me, even if we're talking about things and you're hearing them and saying, I think that you're wrong, Andrew. I think that you're wrong, Lloyd-Jones, and I would even disagree with Lloyd-Jones on some of the things that he said and the emphasis that he placed on various and sundry things, but nonetheless, what I want us to do is to engage with God's Word so that if we have a disagreement, let's be honest and say that we may in fact disagree with what the Bible says and that we would allow God to do His work on our hearts so that we might conform more to God's Word rather than trying to get God's Word to conform to us. So I want to reiterate the important points that Lloyd-Jones was making, and the two passages that we're going to look at are Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, which uh, we spoke uh, of uh, a couple weeks back that we would be revisiting them, and then we're going to move forward with Ephesians chapter 4 starting next Sunday. The first important point that Lloyd-Jones makes that I want to reiterate is that the church is a local gathering of believers. In olden days, meaning before 1979, we as Anglicans would talk about this being the church militant. That is, the church is the local gathering of believers around God's Word where the sacraments are rightly and duly administered. Let me read to you what the articles of religion say. This is Article 19 of the church. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance and all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. And so the church is identifiable by what it does. If the word of God is not being preached, or to quote more specifically, if the pure word of God is not being preached and the sacraments not being duly administered according to Christ's ordinance, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, according to the words which we have been given in Scriptures, baptizing in the name of the Trinity, and on the night in which he was handed over to suffering and death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this which I was given, I now give to you. If those things are not present in the life of a congregation, then there are no church at all. You can have baptism in the Lord's Supper, but if the pure word of God is not being preached, then you don't have a church. And the preaching of the pure word of God is not subjective. I want to be clear about that, because I know that some of you are going to say, well, according to some people's opinion, some churches may not be churches at all. But I want to be clear that we're not talking about matters of opinion in which we can agree to disagree, like matters of church governance. But when the Word of God is very clear about something, and from the pulpit a contrary teaching is elicited, you then become in jeopardy of not being the church at all. That's what the articles say, and of course that's simply reinforcing what Paul is saying to us here in Ephesians about what it means to be the church. And so the church most often is spoken of biblically as a local gathering. And Lloyd-Jones does a really lovely job of fleshing that out and pointing you to biblical references. And it's worth going back and listening to again if you want those biblical references as to how primarily the Bible speaks of the church as a local gathering. But the Bible also speaks of the church triumphant, That is, the heavenly manifestation of the church gathered around the throne of Christ, of which we even here on earth are a part. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? Right? Those who believe. Not just those, which we're going to get to in a minute, those who are members of the visible church, but those who are members of the invisible church who are putting their trust in Christ, that he worked in Christ when he raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, those whom God has regenerated, whose souls he's resurrected and called to faith in him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. Well, we're seated with Christ there as well. And so there's this mystical union between Christ and His church that even though we are dwelling here on earth, we're actually now seated in those heavenly places with Him. Now, the culmination of that will all come when Jesus comes back again and raises raises the dead and judges them, and we'll all be with Him, and it will become a fuller reality. But suffice it to say right now that We're not just members of the church militant, but we are the church triumphant as well as we have a seat around his heavenly throne. And the local body of believers that comes together is the earthly manifestation of this heavenly gathering. And that brings us to his third point that he makes that I think is worth reiterating, the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is that which we can see manifested that comes together normally on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday evening. Uh, Indeed, in fact, it doesn't have to be at a particular time. Anytime God's people are gathered around His Word, there is the church. And so it would be right to say when you come together in your small group gatherings, you're doing church. You're the assembly of God, gathering around His Word. And so anytime... That we are a part of that, we're visibly members of the church, and certainly in order to come into the life of the visible church, it's upon a profession of faith, normally in the form of confirmation. And even those who have been baptized in another tradition or come from another place, we want them to stand before the congregation that is the Advent and declare their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the bishop is there to represent the wider church, which we're gonna to get to in a minute. Uh, But confirmation and reaffirmation of faith is about the individual getting up and confessing their faith in Christ so that they might become members of the visible church. The invisible church is the church that only God can see. And indeed, you can be a member of the visible church and not be a member of the invisible church, but what counts most of all is are you a member of the invisible church? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Are you in a life-saving, life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged Him? Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord? Are you following after Him? Well, that's what it means to be a member of the invisible church. And so anyone that thinks that simply because they're a member of the visible church, that they're automatically a member of the invisible church, is mistaken. There are obviously great uh, uh, overlap, there's a great overlapping between the two, Uh, but again, don't mistake the visible for the invisible church, which in our day and age, because we're into such structures and organizations, and with the heavy influence of the way the Roman Catholic Church thinks about the way the church works, that the visible church is the invisible church. But that's certainly not true, because throughout the Bible, we see that there are people who are baptized who are not believers, Or as the Old Testament would put it, you're circumcised of the flesh but not circumcised of the heart. You may outwardly look and be a member of the people of Israel. You may have been baptized, but you need to listen closely to the language that we use in the baptism service that we baptize those who come to Him in faith. That's what the 1979 Book of Common Prayer says, that faith is assumed in the child that is being brought And yet there comes a point when the child is going to need to take ownership of their faith and stand before the congregation and the bishop and confirm their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're not so much worried about them coming into the visible church, although that's very important. Our greater concern is to see this child grow up into the full stature of Christ and be made a member of Christ's invisible church. And so there's a distinction to be made between the visible and invisible church. When the Bible talks about the church, it talks about it primarily as a local gathering. It talks about it as the heavenly gathering. It talks about the distinct, uh, it talks about this distinction between the visible and invisible church. And fourthly, the point that Lloyd-Jones makes that I think is worth us exploring a bit is that the unity that is found in Christ's church is not found in structures but is found in core commitments or rather commitments to core doctrine. If there's no unity of doctrine, then there can't be any unity at all. And as Lloyd-Jones says, not just some sort of uh, mushy, Well, I believe in Jesus, but actually the Jesus we may be talking about are not the same Jesus, uh, but actually what it means to fall under the authority of God's Word and conform our lives to it and understand that, uh, yes, there are times when we're going to be over and against God's Word, but when our eyes are open to find that we're in rebellion, we don't make some excuse for it, or worse yet, we don't make some excuse for God. We seek to conform our lives to what God would want us to be. And so for the longest time, unity within Anglicanism was in the prayer book, the, 19, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, uh, the ordinal, which, are, which is the, the ordination services uh, in uh, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the, article, the 39 articles, and the homilies as an exposition of really the articles that help better clarify what it is that we believe. Well, by and large, in Anglicanism, those have been completely set aside. Certainly, that's true of the Episcopal Church. And so, the unity that we have really is simply a uniformity in that we all kind of worship the same way, which is why there's such a premium placed on everyone conforming to the rubrics of the Book of Common Prayer, because we all know that we don't believe the same things. And so, even though we don't believe the same things and we may not have a unity of doctrine, at least we all look alike. At least we're all recognizable outwardly. But of course, uniformity is not unity. And unity is not always manifested in a uniformity of practice. But one in the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, Onward Christian Soldiers, the hymn talks about this uh, one in doctrine, one in purpose, one in unity. That's what it means to be the church of Christ, that unity of doctrine, not a unity of structure. And so there are implications for us as believers and even implications for us as the Advent. The first implication, I think, in light of what the Bible teaches about the church, which Lloyd-Jones did a good job of teaching and which I've just reiterated, I hope clearly, is that in the first instance, a denomination is not a church. By the biblical standards, a denomination can't be a church. How is a church defined, or at least the visible church, is coming together around the pure word of God preached and the sacraments rightly and duly administered. A denomination is a structure. And so it's a terrible misnomer that we call ourselves the Episcopal Church, or the Presbyterian Church, or the Methodist Church, or even the Roman Catholic Church. Because those are just structures. They're they're not a church. In fact, you may be curious to know that there is no such corporate entity as the Episcopal Church. If you go to New York City or or Albany, probably, and you look in some sort of in a filing cabinet somewhere for the Episcopal Church, you're not going to find it. What you will find, (coughs) excuse me, is an organization called the Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society. That's the incorporated name of the Episcopal Church. And that's a lot better than our name, the Episcopal Church. The Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society. That's really what we are. We're a society that comes together for common purposes. Now, those purposes may vary from age to age, uh, but it's not a church, it is, in some sense, a movement. Indeed, if a denomination becomes a church, we're in big trouble because if you notice, most churches define themselves by secondary or even tertiary matters. Well, we're the Presbyterian church because we believe in a Presbyterian form of governance, or we're a congregational church because we believe in a congregational form of governance, or we're an Episcopal church because we believe in an Episcopal form of governance. And none of those things is essential to being the church. Shame on us if any of us say, well, because they're not Episcopal in their governance, they're not really the church. Or because they're Episcopal in their governance, they're not really the church. But I have heard people go so far as to say that, that Presbyterians and Methodists and Roman Catholics and others are not a church because they don't conform to the tertiary or secondary matter, depending on how you look at it, of, of church governance. But that's not what constitutes a church. And because a denomination can't gather together around God's Word, and that the sacraments Can't be rightly and duly administered, it's a misnomer to call it a church. Secondly, a diocese is not a church for the same reasons that I've just mentioned. There is one exception, I think, (coughs) excuse me, uh, of when, uh, where in which a diocese actually does function as a church. And that is normally during diocesan convention when we come together in a service around God's Word, and this is objectively, I'm not talking about every diocese, but those places in which the pure Word of God is preached and the sacraments rightly and duly administered, in that moment, yes, the, the gathering of God's people from around that diocese, that is the church. That's what makes the church what it is. But apart from that, a diocese is not a church. It simply can't be. And it can't be that, I've heard this said too, that especially in our Episcopal church, that we are one mega church with campuses uh, all over the geographic area of uh, Alabama. Well, well, that can't be true either. Why? Because the Bible doesn't allow for that. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the church being a body, and there is a sense, as he also talks about in... um excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 19 through 22, which I'll just go ahead and read. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there is a sense in which There is a worldwide church. It's just not defined by a denomination. And we're only the worldwide church insofar as we meet the criteria that the Bible puts forward as the church being the church and understanding that that local gathering is an earthly manifestation of the heavenly gathering that we are also a part of. But when we talk about the worldwide church, we're not talking about a structure. We are talking about being in unity, in doctrine, and in purpose. Gathered around God's Word, sacraments rightly and duly administered as the earthly manifestation of the heavenly gathering. Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, beginning with the 12th verse, For just as the body is one and many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the body of Christ talking about the heavenly gathering. The heavenly gathering, the church triumphant. That's what he's talking about. But here when he speaks of the body of Christ, he's talking about the local gathering because the context is 1 Corinthians. He's just spoken about spiritual gifts within the life of that particular congregation. And the inferiority complex that some people have developed, saying, Well, I guess I'm not that spiritual because I don't have these spiritual gifts, whether that be tongues or something else. But Paul says, No, all the individuals within the life of that congregation come together as the body. And so, within the life of our congregation, if you're an ear, be an ear. If you're an eye, be an eye. It would do us no good if the Advent were just one big eye or one big ear, as Paul would say. But he's talking about that in the context of a local congregation. He's not saying, well, in the church in Birmingham, (coughs) excuse me, the Advent's the ear and Covenant Presbyterian is the eye and Mountain Brook Community Church is the foot. And I mean, I could really go someplace with this, but I'm not going to about what body part each of the churches. He's not saying that at all. He's saying within Covenant Presbyterian, you have many parts that make up the one body that is Covenant Presbyterian Church. Within Mountain Brook Community, you have many parts that come together to make up the body of that congregation. Nor would it be right to say, well, in the Diocese of Alabama, the Advent's the ear, in St. Paul's Greensboro is the nose. No, that's not, what the, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the individual parts making up the body. It's talking about a local congregation. And so it really is only the Bible, well, primarily the Bible speaks about the local gathering of believers. And then beyond that, The church triumphant, and how we're all mystically bound together as the body of Christ, as Paul speaks of the body in Ephesians chapter 1, not in 1 Corinthians 12, because Christ is at the head of us all. And of course, this mystical church, he's not talking about the visible church, he's talking about the invisible church, of which members of the visible church are incorporated but not necessarily in whole because you can be a member of the visible church and not be a member of the invisible church. In this unity that we have in the life of the church, whether it be the visible church or the invisible, certainly in the invisible church, but even in the visible church, our unity is with other believers before it is with a denomination or a nationality, or a race, or a cultural background, or a socioeconomic background. In fact, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have more in common with the Chinese believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's in China today and has to go to church in secret than you do with your neighbor who may be the same nationality, the same race, the same socioeconomic background, the same shared interest. But if they're not in Christ, you can't have the same kinship and closeness that you share with that Chinese believer. I mean, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, for, all, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's where our unity is found with other believers who profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and are agreed in essential doctrine. We could disagree over secondary and tertiary matters. This is most supremely demonstrated here at the Advent during our Lenten preaching series, where we have Baptists and Presbyterians and and Methodists and uh, people of all different denominations and races and uh, cultural backgrounds, but when they get into the pulpit— And they began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of their background, because of the message that they proclaim. We say, that sounds like the Advent. We may disagree about church governance, we may disagree about modes of baptism, we may disagree about how the end times will come about but we're disagreeing about things in which Christians can disagree about because the Bible's not necessarily clear. But on who Jesus is and what he came to do, to die as a substitute on our behalf, and as redeemed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life in the Spirit under the authority of his word, we are in full agreement And therein lies our brotherhood, our sisterhood in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's no wonder that we find a greater unity in our tradition in the Episcopal Church with those who are outside of our denomination rather than those who are within. Now certainly we do have fellowship with those who are within our denomination who share a core commitment to the biblical doctrines of our faith. But at least in my own experience, uh, the people that I go to and that I find as dear brothers, especially as pastors that I call on, are from various and sundry denominational backgrounds. But there's no disagreement over the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in that, we find our unity. And that's one of the joys about being a member of the Anglican Communion is that we're not just some American-made and American-influenced denomination, we're part of a worldwide gathering of believers called the Anglican Communion. And so that's why we have strong relationships with brothers and sisters in places like Rwanda and Australia and South Africa because of this core commitment to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm delighted that they're Anglicans because we can actually have conversations with them and we know that we agree over our common doctrinal standards as articulated by the prayer book and the articles. But we understand that our unity transcends any sort of denomination, even. To paraphrase uh, <clears throat> John uh, Duncan, uh, Rabbi Duncan, the great 19th century Scottish theologian, I'm first a Christian, then a Protestant, then an evangelical, and in my case, not his, an Anglican. And in that order, and it cannot be reversed. It would be a grievous sin to place a denomination above where it ought to be biblically. And so if you're listening to this right now and saying, I am a Baptist before I'm a Christian. Now you may not say that, but I want you to actually step back and do a self-inventory. Do you find yourself getting more wound up about denominational issues than you do about the core tenets of the Christian faith? Then you may put more stock in being a member of a denomination Than being in Christ. And as we look at this worldwide church, the body of Christ, would we place Anglicanism or Presbyterianism or or even Roman Catholicism above being Christian, and in our case above being Protestant, and certainly in my case above being Evangelical? Well, if we've done that, we don't have a right idea of the church as articulated by God's Word. We must think biblically about this, not culturally. Oftentimes when I talk to people about denominations, how they articulate their denominational identity kind of makes me chuckle inwardly because the denomination that they think exists doesn't exist, and it may never have existed. That really, the way they see themselves, what they think is Baptist or what they think is Episcopalian is really isolated to whatever their experience was in the church in which they were raised or a book which they read. But the moment that someone is taken out of their context... Say, for instance, an Episcopalian from Birmingham, and they're plopped down in the context of the Anglican Church of Rwanda, if you hold your denominational identity too tightly, you're going to look at the Rwandan Anglicans and say, that's not real Anglicanism. And what a ridiculous thing to say. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have your preferences, but this idea of Anglicanism being so narrowly defined now it is narrowly defined in the sense of our doctrinal commitments Uh, that's been the case for hundreds and hundreds of years but again denominationalism almost always finds itself immersed in some sense an idea of uniformity. And unfortunately, because of our political climate, which is now seeped into the life of Christ's church, regardless of your denomination, no longer are we concerned about unity. What we're really concerned about is uniformity. We all have to look and walk and speak in the same way. And certainly anything that stands in the way of the momentum of a denomination is sure to be crushed. Now, if there was any denomination that is the poster child for schismatic behavior in the 20th, 21st century, it's our own. Let's be honest. Our denomination has spent over $60 million on lawsuits against other Christians. And the disagreements that we have are not secondary or tertiary. They're very primary. And some of our brothers and sisters have decided to walk apart from the Episcopal Church. And that's grievous to me because that has been a great loss, especially to the Advent, who finds itself more and more isolated. And so the question is, and I'm only speaking personally here. Well, then what good is a denomination? What good is a diocese? If it's, if it's not necessarily biblical things and, and secondary and tertiary matters are what define it, then, then what's the big deal? Why, why care about what denomination you are a part of or <clears throat> if you're a part of a diocese in the case of being an Anglican? Well, denominations and dioceses serve really important functions. And I would long for a day when our own denomination is one in purpose and doctrine and that we really are unified. But because a denomination is not a church, and because a diocese is not a church, we ought not to look at them as churches, but look to them as as they are, structures. Structures that provide for the common good and give us a platform for gospel ministry. We can still have the relationships uh, with other Christians uh, around the world, uh, but I think it would be a great mistake to say that You know, you really don't need a denomination, you really don't need a diocese, because they have an important and vital work in the life of the church. And certainly here at the Advent, uh, it is uh, an important thing for us, and I would say this unashamedly, that we are an Episcopal church. Now certainly we differentiate ourselves by what most of the Episcopal church believes now. Uh, But when it comes to the structures, we are a full participant in the structures of the Episcopal Church and in the structures of the Diocese of Alabama. And so they have their purpose, and I think that they have a vital purpose uh, and role in the life of our congregation. Now again, Martin Lloyd-Jones may have a, a valid criticism uh, this is one of those areas in which I may disagree with him on, where he bemoans the fact that evangelicals tend to come together for movements, but not necessarily to come together as the church. Because right now, that's what we have, at least in my own life and in the life of the Advent, as I've been saying all along here, that uh, we find our fellowship and our communion and our uh, partnerships uh, Beyond uh, even our denomination, which even if we were in the, a part of a, of a godly denomination, I still think that we would probably look to those relationships and not be so narrowly focused on our denomination, and I think that that's something that we can uh, criticize other denominations about who will only work with people who are within the life of their denomination, and I would even go so far as to criticize the Anglican Church in North America, which does have a propensity to do that, and unless you really are a part of them, they're not really willing uh, to work with you. So I want to be an equal opportunity offender uh, this morning as far as that goes. And so really my plea for us here as the Advent is to have a biblical understanding of the church church. It's absolutely vital, and I think it's been a misunderstanding of what the church is that has caused great grief and heartache and lawsuits and the mess that we're in here right now as Anglicans in North America. The key to all of this is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. That's who we answer to. He's the bishop of our souls. And so, dear friends, engage with God's word Get a proper and right and biblical understanding of what God's church is. Wrestle with it. Email me. Ask questions. Uh, be mad at me if you want. Just be mad at me for all the right reasons. Uh, but let's uh, let's really look and understand this. Otherwise, as we move forward in Ephesians chapter, and as we move forward in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's not going to make the sense that Paul intended. And so, it's important that we have a right understanding of who God's church is, what God's church is, and who and what it is, or or what it is that we do as God's people. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have made us a church, and the unity that we have is something that, yes, we're called on to strive for, but it's also something that's given to those of us who are believers in you, and Lord, we pray that we would not be sidetracked by secondary or tertiary matters, but that we would have a right understanding of what your church is, and thereby bring honor to your name, and uh, Lord, that we would see the gospel go out uh, through your church by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.